to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 106. More than two decades of conflict in Novemberland and southern Angola had worn down South African military domination. Tactical superiority was no longer certain. The initial approach, which had been innovative and inspirational, fast, seat-of-the-pants, smart, had slumped into attritional, raging bull, blow-for-blow brutality. It was March 1988, Time for one last push by the SEDF against their FAPLA enemy with the Cuban and Russian allies alongside. As you heard last episode, Commandant Gerard Lowe and most experienced officers of the border war thought the overall plan to attack the Tumpo Triangle for the third time was a bad idea. Jan Breitenbach called it truly misguided. Cuban President Fidel Castro had made it very clear he wanted the east bank of the Quito River held at all costs. As long as the Cubans, Angolans and Russians held the bridgehead, it meant the SADF could not attack the town directly. Not that this was South Africa's aim, at least not their official aim. The plan, they said, was to seize the east bank, cross over to the west side, blow up the bridge, which would then put an end to Fapla's assaults on the Unita town of Movinga. However, the Angolans thought that Quito Quanavali was the main target, and so did many South African troops fighting against Fapla. There was the town, strategic, right in front of them. Do you think that had the Angolan army broken and run, that the SADF would have just stopped across the Quito River? Pretoria's aim was to stymie Fapla's assault on Mavinga, which was being held by Unita, and didn't want to take Quito Quinavali. But South African veterans who were part of this assault admit that had Fapla crumbled, they would have pushed onwards into the town. Pretoria, as you've heard, was playing a game of degrees, infuriating the professional soldiers with their political flip-flopping. The political players had become lukewarm about the hot war in southern Angola. The next battles took place as part of Operation Packer, and cynics could say it should be called Operation Sent Packing. It was not going to be General Cut Liebenbach's brightest moment, as you're going to hear. Throughout the 23 years of this war up to now, the tactical commanders on the ground and the officers and NCOs were given orders and then left alone to get on with their battles and their skirmishes. It's inherently empowering when your top commanders delegate power downwards. It means your system is stable, the soldiers are resolute and resilient. Now every minute of the battle was lapped up by the general staff well behind the lines who interfered and changed their minds as they appeared to have completely lost touch with what was going on. Worse still, they were prepared to ignore the established rules of military strategy. These rules are so intrinsic to conflict and human nature, even capitalist basic training camps known as MBA programs use them, those tenets stated by Sun Tzu and Clausewitz, amongst others. So with that small diversion as a way of introduction, we rejoin Commandant Gerard Lowe in his Omana. It's 4pm on Tuesday 22nd of March 1988, and the attackers are heading towards Fapla's well-defended positions on the east bank of the Quito River. Three 2-Battalion and Khrut Karu Regiment troops were joined by UNITA's 4th Regular Battalion on the western slopes of the Chambinga High Ground and then swept the area, trying to blunt any FAPLA reconnaissance from moving east of their Mahara Lepando flatlands. UNITA spent a lot of time lifting mines, but it wasn't enough. More than 15,000 landmines awaited the SADF, and this was going to lead to a lot of trouble for the Ulifant tanks. Laid in layers, the Cubans had doubled up the fields of death by putting down anti-tank mines along with 130mm shells, and when these detonated, the effect was going to be biblical. 
Regiment Groot Karoo had been shooting up the landscape southeast of the Tumpa River as a ruse, but Fapla and Cuban commanders knew that the SODF assault was going to come from the north. Lowe's force reached the eastern slope of the high ground just before dusk on the 23rd of March. Then he waited for night vision scopes, which arrived earlier that day, to be installed, so important for their movement in the darkness. The tank squadron also received 7.62 machine guns, which were supplied at the last minute, which indicates how poorly logistics were functioning by now. The signalers' chest boxes, as they were known, were also provided at the 11th hour. None of this ideal. Lowe lined up his tanks and the trucks carrying UNITA into a column consisting of two line-ahead formations, which moved parallel to each other, and these shuffled off into the dark. His logistics supply point was then set up, and as the mobile force descended Heartbreak Hill on the western side of the Chambinga High Ground, he ordered a medical centre to be established for the upcoming surgical operations. The rest of the mobile force descended on the northeast edge of the Anhara Lapanda, just east of the source of the Dala River. In the pitch dark, the Rekis lost the trail. They had plotted the route and led the advance, but the terrain was dotted with sand dunes covered with trees, one dune identical to the next, and there were also many tracks which had churned up the paths. The Rekis got confused in the dark and took the wrong route, Lowe said afterwards. About a kilometre further on, the Rekis realised their mistake, but it was too late. It's not possible to turn an armoured column of this sort around in the dark, in the bush, in the sand. So the attack halted while the Rekis headed off south, eventually locating their lost track and then led the column through increasingly dense bush to rejoin their path. 3-2 Battalion had already arrived at their waiting area about six kilometres from the Ford Fuppler Trench, where 2-5 Brigade awaited them. Lowe's men were advancing carefully in the dark, and by four in the morning 3-2 had begun to lay phosphorus sticks in the sand that glowed green. This mobile column was supposed to be moving directly into the attack zone starting at 6am, but Lowe delayed things for 15 minutes. It was overcast, the sun obscured, and the visibility he believed was too bad. He was also worried about getting lost again. Conversely, the poor visibility had kept the MiGs away. Then the tank crews needed to replace their night scopes with day scopes. After another half an hour or so, the Anita troops sprang onto the back of the Ulifans sitting on the engine covers, and the tanks began to lumber over the Lapanda Hanara. Papa's artillery began to shell the area. They could hear the tanks, but the bombardment was off target. This wouldn't be the case for very long. A radio alert was broadcast that MiGs were in the vicinity, and the men in command of each tank and the rattle took immediate action without orders, scattering like cockroaches in a floodlit kitchen, as Lowe described it later. Others said it was a panic action and not a good look. The men were skittish. They had not trained long enough. Even though they were motivated, they had heard the stories of Tumpa 1 and 2. Lowe was even more angry about his spooked soldiers because the planes that had caused the panic were actually their own mirages trying to find Fapla's 25 Brigade. It took Lowe some time to draw the vehicles back into the two parallel lines and then they set off once more, still protected by the thick cloud. But they were using exactly the same route that Mike Muller had used in Tumpo 2. And this was easier than Bundu bashing, as they'd done earlier, but it also meant they were breaking a cardinal military rule. Never attack a reinforced position twice along the same route if you failed before. Looking out to the southwest, after crossing the Anhara Lepanda, the South Africans could see the town of Quito Quenavali through the trees over the Quito River. Their hopes were dimmed, however, because at that moment... One of the two flailing mine rollers had capsized. Now there was only one left. 
This meant that the right-hand column had to enter the minefield without a machine to trigger the ordinances hidden under the earth, and it wasn't long before a massive explosion rent the air. A mine had blown off the track of one of the tanks, flinging a bogey wheel meters into the air and just missing the command rattle. Listening to all these sounds from the other side of the river was Cuban General Ocha Sanchez's top field commander, General Contra Arias. He'd set up what he called a warning minefield to alert his artillery. When the mines were triggered, he realized that his sophisticated defense system based on channeling was working. The minefield was part of an intricate plan to force the tanks to move into an area where the massed artillery would pepper them with anti-tank missiles and high explosives. The minefields themselves had various explosive devices sewn in belts up to 300 meters wide and stretching for 50 meters at a time. And now it was 9 a.m. Lowe ordered one of his plof at a strings to be fired over the minefield, but it failed to detonate. The engineers gingerly prodded their way forward and detonated the string, but reported back that it hadn't stretched across the entire minefield. The commandant ordered a second string fired, but that also failed to detonate. The engineers were now trying to speed things up and crawled across the minefield in a rattle, but this tripped an anti-personnel mine which blew out a tyre. Then the engineers lowered themselves to the ground and using standard mine-detecting equipment, shuffled along and managed to reach the end of the plofader, then detonated the string manually. By now, Fapler's artillery was well aware of where the SADF was, because the plofader created a huge dust cloud, and the BM-21s in particular began to land around the mechanized brigade. Lowe had moved behind a slight slope, so the missiles flew over their heads, landing in the Dala River Valley, leaving pockmarks of black-shell craters. Centra Frias, the Cuban commander, had decided that his trenches should be deepened before this assault and also constructed sturdy bunkers behind the minefields. Behind them was an array of artillery, mortars, guns, mobile rocket launchers, all stretching across the higher ground. And if you listened last episode, you know the South Africans were now entering what Lowe later called a diorama. The Cubans and Angolans could see their SADF quite clearly now. The South Africans could not see Fapla at all. A Cuban crewed tank battalion, the 3rd, was waiting for Lowe's men, along with Fapler's 66th Brigade and 16th Brigade. Another 12 spare tanks had been ferried across the Quito River, and these were arraigned along firing positions. Fapler's men were now in a far stronger position than they'd been during Tempo 1 and Tempo 2, which did not bode well for the SADF. Lowe decided to move forward in a single line along the route blasted by the Plofadder strings, being led by the Ulifant with the mine roller attachment. Moy Rafir Ratel squadron was left behind in reserve and to cover any action from the flanks. This was a moment of truth, and the truth was the SADF were trundling down a slope in full view of Fapla's artillery in good light. Alpha squadron ahead, followed by Bravo, and Quito Quinavali was now spread out, the town clearly visible. The Angolans had Saga anti-tank missiles, which they deployed at this moment. These flew overhead, flashing their danger. The artillery was now finding its range. The blasts got heavier and heavier and closer and closer. Alpha Squadron was just inside the tree line and Lowe ordered them into combat formation, the bombardment making this extremely difficult. Bravo Squadron's movement was slowed by the accuracy of Fopler's artillery. The Angolans had also cut down all the trees from here on. The stumps were another hindrance apart from the minefield. It was now open sand and grass all the way to the east bank of the Quito River. As Alpha advanced with Bravo, Fapla's artillery began to hit the exposed Unita troops sitting on the backs of the tanks and the rattles. They were pulverized. Hundreds were to die in this battle, and the dying started now. 
Three olifants then triggered mines almost simultaneously. One of these hit a mine boosted with 130mm shells. This blew off its entire suspension. The tank was now pinned down, its bogey wheels spinning through the air in the bush behind the squadron. I told everyone to stop and fire girdle action, Lowe told Fred Bridgeland. Each tank and rattle commander picked a spot, a target, and fired independently. But Farpler had the upper hand, and Lowe realized that his important tanks were badly exposed. The only thing that saved more from being knocked out was the fact that the minefield had been laid into the tree line. If they had been out in the fully open grass, things would have been far worse. One of the ARVs managed to tow out a tank, but a second was unable to shift the heavy oliphant. The noise was incredible. Hundreds of rounds striking the area, shells flying in, rocket boosters and motors flying about, shrapnel spinning through the trees, smoke and dust filled the air, and Lowe found it difficult to see what was going on. He ordered Alpha Squadron to withdraw and to hold the line slightly behind while he concentrated on trying to save Bravo Squadron, which was being peppered. He joined one of the ARVs, pulling the tank that had lost its suspension and was lying in a hole caused by the 130mm shell. Anti-personnel mines now were also detonating, and Lowe realized he'd probably been saved from these by some kind of miracle. He'd climbed out of his tank at one point to help connect the two chains on the tank. Try as they might, the oliphant in its hole would not move. Lowe, in what obviously was a moment of great courage, ran over to the tank and hammered on the hatch, telling the men inside to climb out and run off towards the ARV as the tiffies began to cut the ARV and Lowe's oliphant tank loose from the stricken tank. Brigade HQ asked what was going on. They were extremely nervous. But Lowe believed at this point his men could still succeed, and he radioed that the battle would continue. His tiffies, though, found they could not unhitch themselves from the wounded oliphant. The iron bar and shackle had buckled, twisting these two vehicles in a kind of death embrace. They hauled out a metal saw, the last resort, pinging shrapnel flying around them as they cut themselves loose. The third damaged tank was now being dragged along the tree line, which meant that the ARV, another olifant, and Lowe's tank were now exposed along their flanks to the missiles being fired at them from across the open ground. The worst possible angle. It meant the entire sides of the tanks were exposed, a much larger surface area than the front or back. The damaged olifant was the one that was the mine roller, and the Tiffies could not disconnect this flailing device. More accurately, the Tiffies refused to disconnect it. Such was the fierce nature of the fire at these vehicles. Lowe admitted defeat, radioed HQ saying they had to break off Tempo 3. They had used kinetic ropes to drag the mine roller tank and couldn't cut it loose with their military knives. In desperation, they opened fire on their own ropes with the machine guns and their R4s. Finally, the ARV was loose and leapt forward. But now they had abandoned the mine roller along with the other beleaguered oliphant. Two of South Africa's strategic weapons were marooned. Both sets of crews, however, managed to get away. Then Lowe's tank was hit by a shell. It banged, and for a moment he was unsure what had happened. Luckily, he didn't fire back, because later he discovered the shell had hit his gun barrel, denting it. Had he fired, it would have blasted his own barrel to smithereens. It was time for the SADF to destroy two of their own tanks before withdrawing. From the time the tanks had arrived during Modular to this moment, all commanders had been repeatedly briefed that if a tank was marooned, it must be destroyed. This would mean Fapler could not inspect the all-important battle tank. Brigade Commander Colonel Fouchier said he had asked General Kat Liebenbach, who was sitting together at the Colonel's Ford HQ 20 kilometers behind the battle, what should they do? 
No, said Liebenbach, don't blow them up. They would return to recover the tanks later. Now this was the height of arrogance. The SADF had been unable to make it through the minefield in a major battle. What kind of miracle would see the South Africans wander back through the death zone and just tow out their tank? During their withdrawal, another olifant lost its tracks during a sharp turning manoeuvre, and they had to leave this relatively undamaged vehicle behind. Fapler's Mings then made their appearance. It was late afternoon by now, and the mechanised unit had manned back to UNITA's defensive position called Kabarata on the south bank of the Dala River. The planes bombed the tanks and the rattles, but missed. But Fapler's artillery was finding its range again. Because the MiGs were so busy, the South Africans could not fire their G5s. They were sheltering under the trees. Dozens of UNITA casualties had been piling up at the rear surgical post. They had suffered terribly. Some South Africans claim afterwards that this battle was not too bloody. The reality is up to 400 UNITA troops were listed as casualties. It was so bad, a mass grave had been dug for the number of bodies. Lowe retreated to the area where he'd trained his men those weeks before, near the Brigade Tactical HQ. It had been a heavy defeat, but the repercussions were just beginning. Five Ulifant tanks were damaged, none on the Angolan side. Only two of the Ulifants had been recovered. Four Reiki commando specialists, along with 3-2 battalion, headed back to the tanks, but they were too late. The Cubans assisted Fapla and had moved into the minefield where the tanks were marooned and then dug themselves in around the vehicles. This was one of the major propaganda coups for the MPLA of the entire war. And at this moment, when communication is so important, it's where the National Party government failed miserably. Their narrative that they were merely supplying some support for UNITA backfired spectacularly. They had lied for so long, P.W. Boerter and his cabinet no longer appeared to be able to face the truth. It's not surprising, really. Back in South Africa, the National Party was now fighting a very serious uprising in most of the townships, where youth had finally decided to make entire wards no-go zoned. Pretoria had slipped into a dark place where death squads were lurking around. No one was above suspicion. The Civil Cooperation Bureau, a shadowy force of men breaking rules of warfare, trying to beat the ANC and PSC by basically joining them. The international community had stiffened its anti-apartheid resolve, and Pretoria's back was against the wall. The leadership were drawing on old narratives of toughing it out, but the Einders would rather die than allow elections of blacks to take place. The political effect, what was happening, was proving Klaasfitz correct, as usual. War is the continuation of an expression of policy, of politics. The strategy had gone out of kilter with a lack of clarity about why exactly were the South Africans dying in southern Angola for what. In previous years, it had been keenly observed and clearly communicated, but now when the most stress was placed on the political system, cracks were forming. Each ruling elite needs to balance power within itself, with branches of government between agencies, and importantly, dealing rapidly with threats to stability. The Pretoria government itself had become unstable, and its bureaucratic balancing instincts were now muddle-headed. A second major shift was in the action of its allies. The United States and the United Kingdom in particular both were pressurizing Pretoria to stop the war in Angola. While Washington had been sending specialists to southern Angola, some lived amongst UNITA, this is still not fully discussed to this day, the reality was the Americans were only temporarily comrades-in-arms. The long-term goals had now diverged. 
The balance of power equation had shifted for the Angolans as well. More about this next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility of the series. If you want to contact me, you can head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Deslathan. Until next, tot ziens. Thank you.